What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein from the J. Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia, and welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our peers, colleagues, and friends and discuss sports, law, and business. Let me just first start by saying thank you to all of you for all the support y'all have shown me on this podcast. I sincerely enjoy every text, call, social media comment, all of it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all of you who've taken out the time to reach out to me and let me know your thoughts on the show. I also appreciate all the guests who have taken their time to come on and make the show what it is. They've all been great and we'll keep at it. Keeping that tradition, we have a great guest joining us today. Her name is Heather Froy, and she is also somebody who I've known for a very long time and will have great information to share with you. Heather is a lawyer whose practice focuses exclusively on representing injured workers in workers' compensation cases. She is a partner at a very successful law firm, and her practice focuses on the most severe of injury cases. So Heather is a successful lawyer. She's a baseball mom, a self-described foodie, and she enjoys drinking wine. What's not to like about any of that? Heather, so glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. I'm excited to be here and talk some sports and torts today. I'm excited too. And let me just say that one of the benefits of this podcast that I didn't completely anticipate and think about was just how much, you know, I was going to enjoy having an excuse to spend time and catch up with old friends. Uh, You know, recently I had Tom Lutham on the show, who you know from a long time, Josh Granat, Jason Gans, you know, all people that, that we both know really well. And it's just, it's just glad to, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do that and do that with you again today. Absolutely. It's been super fun to hear kind of the, where are they now with some of the old friends from high school and beyond some I've talked to since some I haven't. So it's been great to hear all their sports commentary and what they're doing with their lives for sure. Yeah. And I've, I've received texts from people, you know, several states away that I've not heard from in a while since high school, really. Like, oh, heard Tom, heard Josh. So it's cool. Um, so let me set the stage. You're here in my office. Uh, I, we, we talked a week or two ago, and I, I asked you, you know, as I like to do, like, what kind of what kind of drinks do you like? So I want to make sure that we have a drink while we're doing this. And you told me that you like wine, which I do, too. Absolutely. Um, and then I asked you what type of wine, and you had a very specific answer. So I'm a red wine drinker, and from all the menus, I always try to shoot for a Willamette Valley blend or a Pinot Noir, whichever they have. It's just a region that I find to be not too dry, not too sweet, just good grapes, and always a good a good glass of wine. Sound very professional with that answer. <laughs> See, I, you know, I, I like it. So I like wine too. I'm usually a um, Napa Cab, um, which is kind of a standard go-to, but I like a Pinot Noir too. So. The one that we're drinking, um, I hope I pronounced this right, it's from Willamette Valley, uh, Domaine Le Bajoc. You ever heard of this before? I have not, so I'm excited to try the, it. The, the, the folks over at, uh, at Total Wine said this was a good one. Domaine, that means house of, is that right? I believe so. Okay, so maybe we're drinking the house of Le Bajoc. Uh, so, so far, so good. So are you like a, a wine drinker when you're eating, cooking, or are you like when you're out that's what you're drinking. So generally out, um, I always enjoy a glass of wine with dinner, um, probably more so than I should <laughs> for the waistline. But, um, you know, I liked a glass of wine when cooking. I think during COVID, I expanded my horizons a little bit, trying a few different things since we were home so much. I cooked a little bit more than I do did before or I do now. So it's nice while you're cooking. And then obviously out on the weekend, just enjoying a nice glass of red. I love it. I agree with you. Yeah, cooking, there's something about like opening that bottle of wine when you start to cook you know, and then while you're eating, finishing it up. So yes, absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's all good. And it's hard to open up a bottle of wine and not finish it. <laughs> That's true. Right. That's true. All right. Well, I, I teased a little bit about who you are in your background, but, but just introduce yourself to the listeners who don't know you. So my name is Heather Froy. I grew up uh, in East Cobb with Josh, went to the same elementary school, not the same middle school, but same high school as well. Where'd you go to middle school? Dodging. Okay. So we kind of split up in our middle school years, but then went to high school together again. Uh, also went to UG undergrad uh, went to universe uh, george state university law school after undergrad and from there began my legal career Here you are You're yes a successful lawyer cool so at georgia um you studied political science right i was a psychology major with a political science minor got it i knew yes, i knew so political I science was yes. in there um and was that was that a major a field of study that you chose because you always wanted to go into the law 
I did, and it's funny. After, gosh, years of practice, my grandmother found something in her basement that was one of those things that you do when you're seven or eight years old, and it's what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had lawyer down even then. No kidding. Absolutely, yes. So at seven, eight years old, you already had dreams of, of the career yes. that you're now doing. Yes, absolutely. wonder what made you feel that way. I don't know. I, you know, I, ne- I don't really think back on that and think there was anything in particular. I was never really a math person, so med, med school was kind of out of, <laughs> out of reach for me. Um, I think I always wanted to do something something professional, get a you know higher level degree, things like that. Uh, the law just kind of went with my love of arguing and writing. <laughs> Would your parents agree that you're, you're arguing at that age? Absolutely. Still to this day. <laughs> so I, I don't have that kind of like a, a, an inspiring story as a child of, of, of wanting to go to law school and being a lawyer. I've said on this podcast before that I was looking for three more years in Athens. I have and, heard that. You yes. know, and, and, and that was that was the, that was you know, the, the way to do it. So, um, well, good for you. So you went to Georgia State, which is in downtown Atlanta. Yes. How was that experience uh, going to school in that kind of environment? So I moved back to Atlanta from Athens, and I actually got married after my first year of law school. So I wanted to be somewhere local. It had a great law program, and I also loved the, the idea of being close to the courthouses, close to lots of large law firms, medium-sized law firms, small law firms, whatever the case may be. There was just a lot of opportunity for practical experience being right in town. So were you all able to get some exposure to the courts and go do some kind of real hands-on type stuff? Absolutely. Cases like criminal procedure, we would actually go do kind of mock trials in the courtrooms of the Superior Court, criminal procedure, things like that. We would have lectures there. We would be able to meet with judges. It was just a really good experience. Georgia State was great, not only for that practical experience, but also from the fact of the multiple programs that they have, they offer there for law school students. So there's there's a lot of diversity in terms of people there, as I understand it, you know, night school, part-time, people that are working, people that are pursuing other degrees, MBAs. Is that, is that right? Yes. So Georgia State offers an incredible part-time program. When I went there in the early 2000s, I would say a good third of the students there were full-time workers and also doing a part-time uh, JD program. Uh, they also have a joint MBA program, which was great as well. They just have a lot of different options for people at different stages of life. I remember I had a, a fellow classmate that was 65 years old, just kind of awesome. coming back to, That's awesome. to get his law degree, something I guess he always wanted to He was to probably do. loving it, huh? Yes, absolutely. Hey, would he hang out with you guys and go to the bars and stuff? Uh, there was not as much of that being at Georgia State. It was more of a commuter school. Yeah. Are you still in touch with a lot of the, your, your classmates? Uh, a couple that I talked to here and there. Yeah. couple that I talked to. And it's funny, uh, one of my law school classmates actually worked with Tom, I think, at the Gwinnett DA's office. Oh, yeah, Krista who Kirk. That? Who? Krista Kirk. Cool. Yeah, so I know that when I was listening to Tom's podcast the other day, I remembered that they worked together. One of my old partners, Adam Jaffe, was a Georgia State graduate. Was he your year? Does that name know. ring a bell? It does not. It does not. So I always remembered in law school, like those interviews, the on-campus interviews and like None of us really knew the kind of work we wanted to get into. Maybe you did. I don't know if you had a burning passion for one particular area or the other. So when I went to law school, I thought firmly I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And I thought I wanted to go be one of these women that was in the business suit all the time doing mergers and acquisitions. And then I took corporations and I realized that that is the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. Uh, Through my coursework at Georgia State, I realized that I definitely wanted to take a litigation pathway in some way, shape or form. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I got an on-campus interview with a firm that did a specialty that I had never really encountered or thought to do in that cool yeah i mean i feel like law students kind of fall into a couple different buckets you know there's some folks that like they want to do criminal work right they want to do prosecution or defense some people want to do some sort of litigation you know whether it's what we do you know or or defense work Um, and then other people want to do corporate work and so you kind of go in thinking you're doing one of those things and then maybe take a class like you did that sends you in a different direction yes i remember taking a, a corporations class and i don't think i even understood what the issues were like, what, what do mergers and acquisition lawyers do? I'm sure it's very heady and important, but I wouldn't be able to probably do day one of it. No, and I think that's the funniest part about going to law school is I feel like once you find your practice area, your brain completely leaves you of everything else that you've learned during law school. Property, tax law, corporation, wills and estates is all gone. I remember taking a secure transactions class. And even at the time, I was like, I'm probably never going to use this, this stuff again. So uh, I already said that you, you work in, you do workers' compensation. That's what you're talking about. You found this niche Absolutely. that has now been your career. Yes. So I started working at my former firm uh, as a 3L, third-year law student. 
I clerked for them, took the bar, and began work as an associate thereafter. I worked there for about 12 years. And what firm is that? Cusdy Ehrman, Wagner Stein, and Sansalone. Oh, it's a mouthful. Yes, it is. How, what, 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 do you, what did y'all shorten that to? Oh gosh, it's been lots of names. Sometimes it was longer than partners left and it was shorter and now I don't even know what, what, what they are, but um, it was, we used initials. Used initials, there you <laughs> we go. We used initials. There you go. So that's cool. So you, so you interviewed with them on campus, clerked with them, and then you were there for like, what, 10, 12 years yes. from associate to partner? Correct. Yes. That's a unique story, right? Like that doesn't happen very often. That first job doesn't always end up being the one where you're, you stay for multiple years. Well, it was a great place to work, very laid back, which I liked. It was not a very, you know, uptight have to be in a suit every day, lots of family folks. You know, I had my son while working there, so it was just a more laid back environment. I was one of two women that worked there, but it was kind of, I don't want to say it was a frat house because I really enjoyed all of the people that I worked with there. Lots of great guys. That's where I got my love of fantasy football, uh, was working there. Just a great place to start out. Lots of people. I still have a uh, one of the partners there, Mike Thorpe, who when I have a large legal case that's going to trial, I always call him. He's I'm just picture, one of I'm those mentors. Belushi running up and down the halls <laughs> of your law firm. Oh, it was a hot mess up in there, but great place to work. That's great awesome. Place to work. That's awesome. I know you, you've, you've told me many times you've got you know great experience there yes. and, and fond memories. Um, and did that firm only do workers' compensation and only defense? We did a small amount. We had one partner that did a little bit of personal injury, but I would say 99.9% was workers' comp defense. Okay. So for the people that are not familiar, you know, they're not lawyers or familiar with the legal profession or people that just don't really know what workers' compensation truly entails, which frankly, I'm one of those people. I mean, I understand it, but I don't really know the nuts and bolts and kind of digging into some of the minutiae in the weeds. Um, I'd love for you to explain a little bit about kind of what workers' compensation is, the usual fact pattern, what the lawyer's roles are in a case. Absolutely. So when an injured worker has an accident on the job, their exclusive remedy under the law in the state of Georgia is through workers' compensation, which means that even if their employer is negligent, they cannot sue their employer in regular civil court. It is an administrative type of law that deals with medical treatment and wage loss benefits. Um, One of the things that we have to look at is whether or not an accident arises out of or in the course of their employment. So when I was on the defense side, my job was to defend, meaning figure out a way for this not to be a work accident. Uh, Now, obviously, on this side, my job is to meet my burden of proof to show that an injured worker is, in fact, hurt on the job and is entitled to medical treatment and wage loss benefit. Gotcha. All right. Let me stop you with a few questions there. That, that helps that helps frame the type of case. So there's not a jury system in, in a workers' compensation case. There are no juries. Okay. So, like, so unlike a truck case or a wreck case, a car wreck case or a fall case that I would handle, the, the ultimate decider of the outcome is, is going to be a judge overseeing a jury trial. Correct. It is an administrative law judge. There's no jury just basically evidence presented, medical records tendered, uh, testimony. And there's a, there's a, there's still a trial if the case doesn't get resolved or so there's a trial that is presented to this judge and then whatever he or she decides that's going to be the ruling? Correct. So we tender the evidence, the medical exhibits, the testimony, and then following the hearing, we submit post-hearing briefs. So where that's where we lay out our legal argument. Because there's no jury, you know, when you go to court, you're giving your opening argument, your closing argument, all of those things. We don't have that in workers' compensation because there's no jury really to give it to. So we do post-hearing briefs, and then the judge issues an award. So how many judges would, like, are, are how many administrative law judges are there, let's say, like in Atlanta? For workers' comp cases. In the Atlanta, metro Atlanta and contiguous counties, because we have to do it by venue, contiguous county, I would say there's probably seven in Atlanta. Then there's also what we consider circuit judges. There's one in Rome, one in Gainesville, Savannah, Waycross, Macon, uh, Bainbridge, I think. So I imagine you're seeing the same judges like all the time. Yes, it is a very small bar. And do you start learning what judges rule certain ways and try to tailor presentations or avoid some judges making decisions altogether to say, this case we have to settle? Well, we don't get the choice of venue per se. So I know in some, and I don't, again, I won't tread on your area of the law either, but we don't really get a choice of venue. Wherever the accident happens, 
Like if it's in Gainesville, we know what judge we're going to get. If it's in Savannah, we know what judge we're going to get. There's one in those areas. Metro Atlanta is a little different because it goes into basically a queue, and then it's based on how many cases that judge actively has. We're just assigned a judge. There are definitely some that judges that were appointed during a more democratic, uh, democrat based time period that are more injured worker friendly and then those that are appointed during a more Republican era are a little more employer insurer friendly. Got it. That raises a good question I've always wondered is like when you vet a worker's compensation case, whatever side you're on and try trying to issue spot, you know, this is something that should be compensable versus not, or this should be super, super compensable versus just kind of a, a, a smaller amount. Like what, right. are the, what are the main issues that you're, you're looking at? So we're looking at number one was the accident witnessed. Is there anything to prove that it actually happened versus our client's testimony? Two, we're looking at pre-existing conditions. Now in Georgia, an aggravation of a pre-existing condition is still a compensable or work-related accident injury. Uh, we have to look at it from the perspective of how far prior was the pre-existing problem. Had they had any ongoing treatment for that problem? Um, There's certain defenses the insurance company can raise, such as intoxication, um, not following, you know, safety procedures, things related to roughhousing or personal missions, things like that. You know, were you actually doing something that benefited the employer at the time you were hurt versus, you know? having a fist fight with your buddy over an ex-girlfriend or something So you like just that. brought up a couple things. Well, all, all that stuff is great, but a couple things I'm, I'm assuming people listening right now are, are kind of catching on to, which is one, like the phony claim, right? Oh, for Th- sure. This wasn't witnessed. This is complete BS. It's bogus. Someone's just making it up. Like, t- tell me a good story or two where you've seen something like that happen. So I think this is a great, something that helps our clients a lot. So me having done defense work for so long, I was a very litigious defense attorney. So I was one of those attorneys that I loved being in court. I was going to find your you described, deep, dark you, you, secret. You, you were a hard ass. <laughs> yes. You took it very seriously. And by God, you were going to find out if they were full of it. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, on the defense side, there's a lot of surveillance that was done. A lot of things related to prior index searches, things like that. So when I vet clients now, I think on this side, my defense days give me a lot of kind of hints as to what I should and should not be looking for. When I interview a client now, I absolutely do not guide them when I ask them where their pain is. Because if someone says my pain is just in my back, solely in my back, that makes me think it's not as severe of an injury as someone that says my pain is in my back and it radiates down my left leg only, down to my toe, and I can't feel my toe. Correct. So there's certain questions that you can ask that uh, really and truly give you a basis for the kind of injury you're dealing with. And I think after doing it for so long, you can tell by the way a person presents themselves, are they legitimate or are they hiding something or, you know. So take us back to 2013, 2014, like the height of your defense attorney powers. Give us a good kind of war story of what you caught somebody doing. So Try to pull was, one over on you. It was one of my first cases with a brand new client who I wound up later representing a lot of the school boards in the state for. And it was a catastrophic claim. And this adjuster was old school. She'd been doing this for, she's one of my favorite adjusters, actually. She'd been doing this for 50 years, 40 years, 50 years, however long. She's older. She had a catastrophic claim and she said, Heather, I know this guy is faking it. So we work the claim, we work up the medical, we try to get something. And when a claim is catastrophic, they're getting benefits for life. So there's really very little you can do absent a showing of something that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing or something they're telling the doctors they can't do. So we wound up getting footage of him on a ladder out in an orchard using a chainsaw to chop down trees. There you go. So it was one of those situations where the adjuster had a gut feeling and I said, let's run with it. And and so then what is like when you give a smoking gun like that and you've got it, is it strategically used like to send to his, his the attorney, to the judge? Like how do you play that card? So there's two options. Either you present it to the claimant's attorney, you know, as a defense attorney, and you say either we're going to get this case settled or I'm going to request a hearing and get your client's benefits cut off or reduced significantly. Because in a catastrophic case, they're basically saying to the board, there's no work at all I can do. Well, if Not you can this company or any other. Any, you can't go, I can't be a Walmart greeter because my pain's so bad. And then I have video of you chopping down a tree with a chainsaw on a ladder. Clearly, there's work you can do in some way, shape, or form. So generally, you know, similar to your type of cases, the cases either go to litigation or they settle. It's the same, it's the same premise as with personal injury and 
any type of injury law, it's one option or the other. I would say in workers' comp, 99% of them settle. I don't know the percentage on what you do, but... Pretty high. Now, how about how about finding out, you know, the workers that were drinking on the job or doing some sort of drugs on the job? So drug defenses and intoxication defenses on the defense side are really hard because you're relying on your employer to follow the law. So the law says that those, into- like the drug tests or the alcohol testing, has to be done within 24 hours. The likelihood of an employer having the wherewithal to get somebody to urgent care and request the drug or, you know, alcohol testing are very slim. So as a defense attorney, you're facing an uphill battle. Now, as a claimant's attorney, anytime you get a drug test, I don't care if it's 24 hours or not, that is a red flag for, sure. you know, when, you, when you're signing up that client Got or it. talking to that client. So, so when these cases get resolved, the compensation is um, medical bills are paid for like <clears throat> through, a, through a, a doctors that are chosen, like a panel that doctors get Right. So in workers' compensation, the law allows employers to have what's called a posted panel of physicians, which is a list of supposed to be six or more doctors that the injured worker is entitled to choose from. That is supposed to be posted before the accident and also provided to the injured worker following their accident. Posted somewhere like on premises? So yes. That it's for so that it's see. They're supposed to, it's supposed to be explained to them. They're supposed to have an understanding of what it is, which never actually happens. But insurance companies will argue, well, it's posted. They should know what it means. Or they'll have them sign some document saying we've seen it, even though they don't show it. It's lots of things that employers, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I mean, some employers do a really, really good job of trying to educate their workers as to what they're supposed to do if they're hurt on the job. Mm-hmm. But it's a situation where that panel is critical because the doctors that are on that panel are on there for a reason. They report directly to the insurance company, and they're going to advocate more for the insurance company than the injured worker. They have a reputation of being kind of harsh on the workers in terms of like, you can get back to work, you can... Right. You're not as injured as you say. I mean, is that fair for me to? Yes, that's, that, that's is, that is fair. That's a broad fair. brush, of course. But. Yes, and it depends on the circumstance, obviously. But yes, the doctors on the panel are far more likely to push our clients back to work than a doctor that we choose. So one of the most important pieces of our practice is either trying to fight to invalidate a panel if it's not valid because there's certain requirements that have to be met or prove that the employer did not comply with the statute as it relates to explaining what the panel is. Your job is hard. It is. It's not easy. There's a lot going on there. Uh, My job, you just divide by 33% and, you know, I'm kidding. There's more to it than that. But uh, your job, there's a lot going on there. Um, So the settlement, they got the doctors that, that do what they just did. And then their wages, they get a percentage for every week they're out? Right. So I think the big difference between the type of law you practice in injury law versus workers' compensation is that our clients, if the injury is compensable, meaning accepted as arising out of or in the course of their employment, they're paid as they go. So once they're disabled for seven days or the employer's not able to accommodate whatever restrictions they have, they're paid two-thirds of their gross wages during that period of time that they're not able to work along with their medical bills, which is kind of the opposite of yours because yours, it's all paid at the end. And then once they are able to, you know, quote, get back to work, that payment stops. If they're released to full duty, yes, that payment stops. Versus mm-hmm. some sort of modified, can't do this kind of job, but can do another. So so if, you, if, you're work, if you're representing like somebody who has a very physical job, they can do a desk job. How does that work? So if the employer offers the desk job, then the injured worker has to go back and at least attempt the desk job. If the employer, however, does not have the work, then the insurance company has to continue to pay weekly benefits with some nuances there. What if the employee says, I don't want to do that desk job? Then they don't get benefits. Interesting. Yep. They have to try the job. If it's offered and it's available and they say no, that's on them. Correct. Usually with the doctor's approval, of course. Okay. And then is there also a lump sum settlement that they're entitled to potentially? Yes. So like I said, 99% of these cases settle at some point during the course of the claim, usually because the insurance company has said to us, okay, he's had his treatment, she's had her treatment, we're, you know, we're ready to close the claim. They'd rather pay a percentage of the remaining potential benefits in a lump sum versus keeping the claim open and paying weekly benefits. Now that has pros and cons to both. For the injured worker, the pro is they get a lump sum settlement and can try to find something after they settle the case that's within their restrictions. Now that may take time. You know, right now is a little bit better of a time to find a job, but there are also people that have no transferable skills. They, you know, they've been in construction all their life. 
they have nothing else that they know. You know, I've been heavy labor for 50 years. I'm 65 years old. I've been doing heavy work all my life. This is what I do. What's the situation where, um, hey, look, Mr. Worker, Mrs. Worker, we'll resolve this case with you, but you can't come back here to work? Employers and insurance companies do not like to bring people back to work. There's a reason for that. From a risk management standpoint, and I know this from my defense days, once someone is injured on the job once, they are far more likely to get injured on the job again. And what that means for the insurance company is a new claim. So with every settlement, well, I won't say every, most, almost all, they require a resignation along with the settlement of the case. Now, you were clearly very passionate and very, very intelligent about this. So I'm learning a lot. Are you happier now with representing the workers as opposed to when you were on the other side? 100% yes. So when I did switch sides, it was, I think, a big shock to a lot of people because I was very, very cynical as a defense attorney. I don't know if it's because it's, quote unquote, how I grew up at a very, very aggressive defense firm, not believing anyone was really entitled to benefits, but people were floored that I changed from the defense side to the claimant side. Um, But I do believe that I bring the same passion on this side that I had on the other side. For sure. So I'm fascinated by people's story from jumping from one job to the next, or in our case, from one side of the law to the other. Um, It's not an easy thing to do, especially you were a partner at your defense firm, right? Been there for 12 years, all that you ever knew. Um, So talk about that process of of switching to the other side, joining up with your partner now, and kind of the way that you're you're, you're running your practice. So like I said, I was partner trucking along, representing good percentage of the school boards in the state on the defense side. And I had a colleague, Susan Sadow, who she's just one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Friends with everybody, knows everybody. Uh, We would have lunch once or twice a year, see each other at seminars. And we had our annual lunch. It was around Christmas time. And we sat down and she kind of started telling me she she was looking to maybe hire somebody. Did I have any suggestions? Because, you know, her kids were having kids and she wanted to be able to spend more time with family and do a little bit more she traveling. She was a solo practitioner at the solo time. Solo practitioner at the time. Which means she was the only lawyer that was at her law firm. Right. So she was doing it by herself and she was just looking for somebody to come in and work with her so that she didn't have to, to bear the whole load of all the cases all the time. And so that when she actually went on vacation, she could enjoy her vacation and knew that things were taken care of here. So we talked about different possible people that might be a good fit. You know, I think she knew that me being a partner, I knew a lot of these younger lawyers on the claimant side just from having cases against them. So we talked and talked. And after I left the lunch, she shot me a text and said, hey, would you have any interest in doing this? And We just talked about five other people, (laughs) but, you know, how about you? So, you know, I I was kind of taken aback because I'm very loyal. I, I think that I'm a loyal person. I had no intention of ever leaving where I was. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the adjusters I worked with. And I think that's translated, again, to good some good relationships on this side. But I kind of sat back and thought, well, is this what I really want to do forever? Do I want to be stuck to this billboard, billing board forever? And one of the first things I did when I did switch side was burn it. <laughs> because billing hours... <laughs> do you have is, a picture of that or a video no, of that? Because no, that, that's, a, that's a very private moment. A very private, private moment. moment. It was you and a bottle of Pinot Noir. <laughs> yes. Something along those lines. Yes. But, you know, so we kind of worked through some details and I, you know, I talked back and forth about it. And I actually had a conversation with my son, Carson, who is he's now 14. At the time he was, goodness, I guess, eight. And I kind of talked to him because he's my, my person has been for a long time. I said, you know, I'm talk, thinking about changing jobs. And he said, well, mom, what, what are you going to do different? And before I said, well, now I'll be helping the people that get hurt at work versus helping their, the people they work for. And he said, well, that's a no brainer. You got to do that. Carson gets it. <laughs> yes. Carson he does. gets it. He's he like, does. mom, that sounds like it's a better way to go about it. Yes. Uh, cool. So was that what you needed to hear? Like the, the affirmation from the eight year old? I think I knew the right call, but it definitely helped. It made it that kind of warm and fuzzy, like, okay, you know, God shot, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. No, they can put it, kid, you know, they say from the mouth of babes, you know, because they just say exactly how it is. So that, that's cool. All right. So backing up a little bit, because I think it's a great story. Um, it's just so interesting to me, all the different ways in which partnerships are created or new jobs are created. You know, Rob Hammers was just on here and he answered a Craig's, Craigslist ad. Mm-hmm. You know, you were having a standard yearly kind of check-in lunch that turned into now your partner. It's just fascinating. Well, I think it's about networking. It's about the relationships you build. I think it's being a good person, showing your work ethic to everyone and everywhere that you go. 
you know, so people know that, you know, she's a hard worker. She's going to get the job done. She knows what she's doing. Same with you. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where right place, right time, but also being mindful that your actions throughout life will follow you. Couldn't agree with you more. Don't you think networking, if, if any advice you can give somebody, like that's number one? Well, you know I do. <laughs> you know I do. Well, well, <laughs> you've actually gone so far as to create networking groups. Yes. I so mean, that, 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 I'm kind of teeing you up for this, Heather. I, mean, I know. Uh, I knew you were. I mean, I, I, um, I, I truly believe that that your network is is what's most important. Yes. And that's why I think that this this podcast I'm having so much fun with it because my network is is full of great people just like you that have tons of good things to share. Um, and so that's what that's it's everything. I mean, it, it led to your job. It's how I got yeah you know, my my plans career started. Um, but yeah, I was teasing your network group that you've started. Yes. That I'm a part of. So talk a little about that. So. Uh, about a year ago, I was talking to a couple of actual just friends, friends via Carson, friends via work, friends you know, via my community, and I live OTP in Woodstock, and I said, you know, there's tons of B&I groups that you have to pay for to meet people in your area or surrounding areas to network with, and I thought to myself, well, how cool would it be? I have a lot of people that I know that are small business owners or professionals or have services or goods that might be interested in meeting, you know, once a month, once every six weeks kind of putting your ideas, helping each other with, you know, social media, because I know a lot of us didn't grow up with that. That's a whole new beast, you know, topics for that, things related to marketing and, you know, growing your business, you know, even from the administrative type items, things we can help each other with that for small businesses or people that don't have large HR and marketing and all of that may be helpful. So I started this group called OTP Connect, and basically we meet once a month, every six weeks, depending on everyone's schedules, to just kind of meet for breakfast or a drink and talk about what's going on in our businesses. We try to promote each other's businesses via the Facebook page. We pushed your Sports and Torts podcast. I appreciated that shout out you gave. Got to get picked up a few listens from that, which is always good. So uh, it's a great group. It's a great group. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to breakfast with you, you know, and it's, it's people from different areas, right? Like sometimes we get so stuck in, you know, networking within your own industry. But it's very important to have exposure to people outside of of just our industry. Absolutely. You know, and especially for us in the legal field, you know, we keep it to one person per specialty. So we have one workers' comp lawyer. We have one personal injury lawyer. We have one family lawyer who I just happened to refer a case out to this week. There you go. You know, it's a great way to get people's names out. And just when you think about something, oh, well, I know them from... OTP Connect. And the reality for, for the jobs that you and I have, it's like really anybody could be our next client, Correct. right? Like there's not a particular person that's only going to get injured at work or only going to get you know, in a car wreck. So, you know, the more people you know, the more likely a, a client contact comes up. Not that that's the only reason why we do these things, but we do have businesses that we want to run and, and make sure they're successful. Yes. So that's cool. Um, I want to make sure we spend some time talking about, you know, being a female in the law, okay. which uh, I am very impressed with, with, this, with all you've been able to do. I know it's very, very difficult. You mentioned Carson, uh, raising him, working, you know, the frat house law firm yes. and, and all the hours that come with it. So, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what your journey's been like from the female side, the challenges you face, like how you juggle all the responsibilities that come your way. Absolutely. So for most of my professional career, um, I've been a single mom and trying to balance that wanting to be everywhere for him versus wanting to be the most successful career woman I can be. I think that in life, there's ways to manage your time and prioritize things to make sure that all your bases are covered. I would say starting out at a very male dominated firm was a good place for me to start. And I think because at that point in my career, being one out of two women at that firm, I knew that I was going to have to work my ass off to get where I wanted to get. Um, And I say that just because guys are going to be guys. You know, I listen to your podcast, which I love, and I think I'll listen to forever. And I think that the male brain has a special place for all the statistics and player names that is saved in women for like children's doctor's appointments and what are we cooking for dinner and those kinds of things. I don't want to interrupt you, but that is (laughs) an amazing analogy because you are 100% true. I can remember the play in 2012 that messed up George's ability to go to the national championship game, but I forget that Graham has baseball practice at 4:30. Correct. Or Isabella has to be at a Dodge appointment at nine o'clock. Correct. Like all that is Dana. 
you know, she's got it. She's got to remember all of that. Yes. So what a, what a perfect way for you to put, put well, that in perspective. And I love it because I sit here and I listen. I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm a pretty sports savvy person. But I'm going to tell you just from what I hear of you guys talking with all the stats and players and this play and that play. And I'm like, I didn't watch it that closely. Or maybe I was just thinking about what I had to cook for dinner the next day or the grocery list. Or It's what. probably the latter. So. So how do you do it? I mean, how do you how do you get dinner on the table? How do you get to the grocery store? How do you build 2,000 hours a year? Like, how's there enough time to do all that? I'm a super organized person. I have to-do lists, which have to-do lists for my to-do lists. Um, it's just got to be, you know, and I won't say like, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm just very type A. You know, I just try to plan times in my day to handle certain tasks, um, whether it be making sure that, and I think that switching sides has helped that quite a bit because I'm now able to have a more flexible schedule. And I think that's the biggest difference from going from the defense side to the plaintiff side is I can work from anywhere. My clients don't care where I am when I'm talking to them. I was going to ask if that has helped kind of, you know, allow you to manage things in an easier way, because the truth be told is on, you know, on your side and on mine, like it is more flexibility. Yeah. You're, you're not as beholden to that six minute clock. Right. And so you can do things. I mean, you've told me plenty of times that once Carson goes to bed, he's done his homework, like you knock out another little bit of work or right. you wake up super early in the morning and yes. do it. So I think the biggest thing for me is definitely having a pretty strict schedule in terms of when my work hours, not strict, but I'm on the computer at 7 a.m. every day. And I get probably the best work done between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. every day. Then I work my rest of my day. I get Carson off to school, work the rest of my day. And I try to, by 4.30-ish, shut it down so that I can have family time, go to his baseball games, get him to and from practice. I, I'd say cook dinner, but Matt, my fiance, God love him, cooks dinner because I'm not a very good cook. I was about to say, you've told me, <laughs> in, in confidence and the trust you, you've told me that your cooking isn't really what you're most proud of. Cooking is not my strong suit, but I'm very blessed to have a man who loves to cook and does a very good job. What's <laughs> doing his best that. dish? Oh gosh. The best thing that Matt does is he can open the fridge and make a dish out of anything. That, that's cool. Yes. Which I can't do if I don't have, I'm likely burning it even with a recipe, but I cannot do anything without a recipe, but he's just, you know, he can come together and he makes an excellent meatloaf. He makes all kinds of just really good stuff. He makes fantastic ribs. So can I put you on the spot to give some advice out to people? Sure. Okay. What, what's your advice to, you know, the, the female lawyer fresh out of law school that is in an industry, let's face it, there's a, you know, it's very male dominated, especially personal injury. You know, I mean, I don't, workers comp is it, I don't really know truthfully um, in terms of a, of a split male, female, but like, what's your advice to, to, to somebody about a female to be successful? I think one of the things that I would say is work harder, work smarter, not harder. I think there are tasks that you can do, and we talked about this at Networking Group. There are tasks that you can do to help yourself to be able to be the best mom, the best wife slash significant other, the best attorney that you can be without any one of those things having to suffer because of the other. Now, is it easy all the time? Absolutely not. But it's one of those things where, you know, you can make it work if you put your priorities where they need to be. Now, I can't sit here and say that there are certain times where I haven't wanted to just go sit on the couch and watch a movie with Carson and Matt and my soon-to-be stepdaughter, Reagan, that I'm like, really, I got to do this brief right now, but I got to do it. But in some ways, I think I'm also teaching them work ethic which I think that's something that we need to really promote in our hundred percent. I mean, I, I love when the kids see me kind of grind in really hard um, because let's face it, our kids have, have, you know, they've got a lot of, they've, they've, they don't ask for much. Right. And, and the struggles that all of us as parents have is making sure that they recognize that's not a right to have all that stuff. It's gotta be earned. And we've all worked really damn hard to get to where we are. And I like when they see that and I like when they kind of comment about it. Yes. I agree. So that's good stuff. Um, your current, you know, your, your current work, I know that you had some interesting um, cases pop up with COVID the last yes. the last couple of years. Yes. Um, which I, I, you know, I, I if I had a dollar for every call I got about the legal implications surrounding COVID, then I'd be what they say, like in some far off island right now because no one knew. Right. And people still don't know. But you were you were involved in some COVID stuff some COVID cases. So talk a little bit about that. So we had lots of COVID calls. Our, our initial thought process was not going to touch this with a 10 foot pole. And I guess I should back up a little bit. A call from a worker about what? Okay. Required to go to work with COVID, contracted COVID on the job. So we got calls from everyone that was at work 
that, that had a job and got COVID. So f anywhere from your Walmart cashier to someone working at a retail store, our first line of questioning was if you're not a first responder, we, we just can't help you. You know, there, there's just no way to prove that. So we wound up with two cases that we actually kept that were COVID related. One was an issue where a woman w worked in a hospital and had some pretty severe lung damage as a result of her COVID infection. And the other was actually a death case where the woman was a worked in a jail and an inmate had tested positive. The employer said, you guys all need to go get tested. They all, you know, out of the 12, this was a small town, very small, Jasper, Georgia, out of the 12 employees in the jail, six of them tested positive. My client passed away from it. The first one, the one with the woman that worked in the hospital, the credit card statement showed that she just had too much activity outside, outside the home. So Me Meaning that it could have been, the exposure could have come from somewhere else. Correct. I because mean, that was what your burden of proof was, right? Yes. I'm guessing is like you have to show that she contracted COVID from this workplace. Correct. The standard of proof in a case like this is the preponderance of the evidence has to show that more likely than not, she got it at work. With her credit card state, I mean, nail salon. I mean, just stuff that during a pandemic, this is already a novel issue that there's no case law on. It's just one of those things that we were very hesitant from the get-go. So once we kind of got into some discovery, we just said, unfortunately, plus she'd been released back to work. There wasn't a ton really left to do. But I think that's, that says a lot about your firm and you as a lawyer that, that you were going to make damn sure that you vetted that and knew if it was something that was legit, right? Right. You weren't going to just take it at face value and see if you couldn't squeeze some some money out of no. an insurance company. You did the homework to say, look, we looked into this. I'm sorry, but you've been to Walmart. You've been to Publix. You know, it could have been any one of those places. Well, that's one of the things about our firm that I love is that we are very well respected because we don't bring junk cases in front of judges. You know, our, our counterparts don't think when they see us that it's it's an a not legitimate case. So we definitely vet them and we're very selective in the cases that we take and keep, as are you, I know, because we, you know, prefer cases back and forth. But um, I know you vet some cases for me and you'll say it's just not, not something that's viable, same vice versa. But the second case was a different story. The second case, I felt very strongly that we could meet our burden of proof. This is the jail case. This is the jail case, the death case. Uh, and we wound up litigating the first COVID workers' comp case in the state with the judge from Macon. And uh, we were unsuccessful at the trial level, but we have now appealed to the appellate division, so we're awaiting decision. It's, it's just cool that you jumped into that and... and investigate it and figure it out because like you said there's no case law there's no you know precedent to look for nope. but you took the analysis of uh, exposure to some sort of a problem at work right and applied it to that and we'll see what happens absolutely right? see what yeah. happens and you know it's one of those things where i sleep better knowing that we at least tried yeah the family knows someone was fighting for them someone had their back and, and sometimes that's what you have to do whether it, you win or lose that's just absolutely and you know i have clients tell me all the time Josh, this is not about money. Well, mo most times it is for them, and even if they say that, but a lot of th they, they just want people that will stand up for them and fight for them. And if you lose or you get an unsuccessful result, like they, they, they just feel better knowing that their voices were heard. Someone looked into it. Someone took them seriously. And they got their day in court. And they got their day in court. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Yep. Well, keep us posted how that, how that plays out. I will. Out. Have there been any other cases that have been brought, any other... There was one that was tried after mine, same judge, also denied. So I, I firmly believe that there was not one single administrative law judge that was going to make that decision for the state. I think it's going to be one that either goes up or the appellate division kind of... Yeah, I guess it'd be tough for the judge to kind of put themselves out there and then they have set the precedent now that could open the floodgates. Oh, it will. Right? And, it, and then it once that happens, it's like, now what do you do? It definitely so. will. So, so I guess I guess I, I kind of get it in terms of you know like big picture, you know how how some thought process goes, but but good for you. So you mentioned your son. Um, I've had a great time watching him grow from little dude to this full grown man yes, now. He is. You know, I mean, he's and, he, and he's been successful all along the way at different sports, which I always am very interested in. Um, he is fourteen now, yes. playing high school baseball. 
How did that happen so fast? I don't know, Josh. You tell me because I just remember when he's bouncing on my knee. And, you know, now we're at a point where our life is consumed with travel baseball, high school baseball. I love it. I never thought I would because it's so time consuming in addition to my job and just being a mom to him and love of travel and love, you know, lots of hobbies and volunteering. But I got to tell you, being a baseball mom is probably one of the highlights of my life. The moms love it. It's amazing. The moms love it. <laughs> yeah, you probably heard Dana on this podcast yes. when she came on, and, and we kidded that the moms look forward to it more than the kids sometimes. Well, I think it's there's several reasons for that. First, watching your child do something they love is an amazing thing, and I think especially at this age, all the kids playing baseball at 14, 15, they love this sport because it's a lot of dedication. I mean, high school tryout started in January. He'll play all the way through mid-April. We start travel practice May 2nd, and then he'll play all the way through the summer with like one weekend off. It never stops. No, it doesn't never stop. Um, but I guess, so is he now goes to school during the day, and then does he just walk to the baseball field after, after practice, yes. after school? Yes. So That's he walks cool. straight to the baseball field. Uh, they keep all their their bags and stuff in the, the field house. They have, you know, I'll pack him a snack. He has practice usually till 630. But, you know, right now, the interesting part about high school baseball, there's not a ton of practices because they have so many games. It's crazy to me how many games they have in a week. I think next week we have three games out of five days. Um, so sometimes they'll have four to seven, four to six a week. And where's he in high school again? Remind he goes me. to River Ridge High School in Woodstock. All right. And he's lefty pitcher. Lefty first pitcher. Base. Yeah. So interestingly, in high school, he is pitching only. Travel, he will play first base, outfield, and pitch. They call that P.O. now, Correct. Right? They, didn't, they didn't call that P.O. when I was Correct. growing up. Correct. It is P.O. now. Um, he's got the makeup to be the pitcher. I mean, yes. you know, let's Absolutely. be honest. I mean, he, you know, people kill to have a big body, throw hard, left-handed. Like, that's the prototype. So, yes. Um, I, I know that, the, and I can't speak for him, but I know kids want to play the field and hit, but... You know, if, if he gets in that pitching mode, like, that's that's good. Well, that's why I'm kind of excited, and it's one of the, the big differences that I've seen from high school baseball to travel baseball. So the high school baseball team, the JV team, they took 22 kids, which is an incredibly high number of kids from my perspective because there are several kids. 12, 13. Right. There are lots of kids that don't see the field at all. An so, occasional. Yeah, so that, 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 there's a huge a huge. Um, switch that happens that you just are living through with with high school sports 22 actually 25 is what a lot of the the, play, the, the schools hold and yeah i mean some of the you know you have four or five pitchers only some people never play you know it, it becomes where the best players are starting and that's just kind of how it is yeah um so where did he what parks he hobgood is that where he played coming so he up? started at hobgood we didn't get super into travel until after his bar mitzvah because his focus was he had to be at Sunday school on Sundays and he just we just didn't really get him into you know more in-depth travel uh, until after his bar mitzvah he's doing great playing high school baseball that's so funny like you know when you're going through it and and I'm guilty it's like you you feel like you can't you're not keeping up with the Joneses if it's seven years old you're not playing on these travel teams. Yes. So speak to the moms out there that are losing their minds with their eight-year-old kids right now. Like, give them some perspective of, hey, there's a lot of years to go. you got plenty of time for these kids to play. I would say just let them play what at what level they want to play at. If they're not having fun, then they're probably playing at a level they shouldn't be playing at. Um, I also have seen just so much you know, I don't want to say politics, but with the dad coaching and their kid not necessarily playing at the level that mom thinks they should be playing at, but dad's trying to do what's best for the team. And I've seen a lot of that. I've had a lot of coaches' wives that go ballistic because their husband isn't playing them where the mom thinks they should be playing. And I'm like, let dad coach. Dad knows what he's doing. Um, But it's one of those situations where you just have to know your child and what they're ready for. Um, For our perspective, Carson's got one of those funny baseball birthdays. So he has always been on the oldest end of baseball year, youngest in his class. So for a long time, he was playing on his age level versus his grade level. So he was always the biggest kid. He was, you know, playing, he was always, you know, super big kid as it was, but playing with way younger kids and then the year before high school in eighth grade we jumped him up an age level so that he would be getting reps against 
the counterparts for high school tryouts. Yeah, so I was in that exact same boat as Carson. I was an August birthday. Mm-hmm. And I always played at my age, not my grade. And then right. high school was a rude awakening. Yes. And so uh, my son Graham has a July birthday. Is Carson like June or July? He's June. Yeah. And so, so he, <laughs> I mean, as I talk about people not freaking out early at five years old, I was like looking at his birthday. And so he went from five to seven. He skipped six U to oh, wow. play with his grade so that I felt like that would be a better spot for him. Number one, because yeah. you're playing with your kids that you're in school with. Absolutely. Right. And so that was great. And then it would it would keep him kind of on on level. Well, and I think when you're doing it that young, that's that's a perfectly fine age. But again, we were just playing rec at that point. Totally. You know, yeah. he didn't start in depth travel till thirteen U. Yeah. It's Cooperstown year, which he missed because of COVID, which was very sad. And just for the record, he wasn't playing travel ball at five U. I want to make sure <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to make sure that I'm not that that crazy of a person. So um all right, real quick about Carson. He plays I know, still does, but I know basketball, all the sports. Baseball, his favorite, and your favorite as a mom? Baseball's my favorite. Always. Yeah. You know, he he had been asking and begging to play football forever as a younger, you know, when he was younger, and his dad and I decided not until high school because, you know, we were concerned about concussion. He's a very smart kid. We You know, we have high hopes for him from an academic standpoint. We just weren't willing to risk the concussion until he was a little bit older. And then he tried football, summer practice, and he's just like, yeah. I just don't love this enough to risk my pitching arm. My, <laughs> and I was get, like, yeah. mature decision, bud. Give me my bat and my glove back. <laughs> right, yeah. Awesome. So. Well, we'll be looking forward to uh, seeing seeing him keep moving up and, you know, doing awesome things. Well, so thank you. I do want to make sure we spend some time talking about food because you are a self-described foodie and you are a foodie, right? Yes, I am. Uh, you chose fantastic, you know, wine in terms of region where it's from. So I know you've got some good credibility there. Um, and you've got your own Instagram page. I do. Let's hear I about do. that. So my love of food started. My parents owned a bagel shop. Uh, in Sandy Springs, which is actually where I met Dana and her grandmother, who I adored. She used to work for my parents. Um, So I've been around food all my life. Again, not a very good cook. Love to eat out, which is probably why the foodie in me came about, because I'd rather go out and find a great spot to eat than, you know, cook a meal. Um, I began taking food pictures just because I loved taking pictures of food. And I occasionally would post them on my personal Facebook page or Instagram page. And I was out with a friend one night. We took a girl's trip to Chattanooga and we were at a restaurant called Stir, which I would highly recommend if you're ever in the Chattanooga area. And she said, you know, Heather, you should be an influencer. And I'm like, what? What's an influencer? <laughs> she's 30. So she's ha- explaining to me what an influencer means. She's like, you take such great food pictures. And, you know, I always ask you for food recommendations, which, you know, I travel a lot and people will al- always text me when they're going out of town and say, hey, we're going here. Where's a great restaurant? So I decided to start an Instagram page that kind of posted on great restaurants, reviews of them, the food I ate, right, what's, what I what's liked, the, what's what the I didn't handle? like. So it is foodie, F-O-O-D-I-E, underscore girl, underscore underscore ATL foodie underscore girl. Okay. We'll drop it in the, in the comments. People can, can find you. So the, the, the pictures people describe as food porn. You've heard that I guess, before. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, what goes into making a good food picture? And I have a couple, couple layers of this question. Okay. Number one is, you know, what do you see on your plate that you're like, yes, this is the right type of thing to photograph. And then two, how do you set the frame of the photograph to really capture what is you're eating? So I generally, when I'm going to do a foodie post, you know, Matt and I will look in advance and try and find like a new restaurant that's open because I like to review them too and not in like a harsh way, but just in a way of, hey, this was really good. The service was excellent. You know, if something wasn't great, did they fix it? That kind of thing. And a lot of the restaurants we go to just have such incredible chefs that plate these meals and appetizers and entrees and desserts in such an incredible manner that I'm like, how could you not take a picture? The of presentation that? is so important. It means so yes. much. Like, like what it ends up tasting like is like, yeah, it's all good. But if it looks nice and the presentation is there, as you call plating it, um, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Well, and Matt always teases me because one of my biggest things about a restaurant that we go to, I will have a first impression of a restaurant by their bread service. 
And I know that sounds so weird. Don't disagree at all. Don't disagree at all. Um, Cold bread doesn't start my meal off well. <laughs> or, or, or if they wait too long to bring it. Right. Right? Like, what's that all about? But there are some restaurants that really go above and beyond with their bread service, whether it be a unique type of butter or some type of topping for the bread or some type of just unique bread that I find really appealing and starts my meal off in the right direction. Got it. What, uh, what, what are some of your favorite restaurants in Atlanta? So I would say in town, one of my favorites is Cooks and Soldiers. It is West Midtown. That's what they bring around the tray. Oh, no, I'm, no, I'm thinking of the gun show. I'm sorry. Yes, gun show is also on our, on our favorites list. But Cooks and Soldiers just has a great mix of tapas and entrees and flavors from kind of all over the world. Great wine list, which is always good for me. Um, and fantastic desserts. One of the better desserts I've had in the city. So that, that, that is your go-to. I love in the city there. Outside, right. OTP kind of close to you. Well, quasi close to you. Vaz Cuisina, Greek in Roswell. Been there several times. It's Fantastic very good. spot. Very, very good. Fantastic. I, I would agree with that. Roswell has all sorts of great options. Yes, I agree. Which is not far, far for you to get to. No, not at all. Not, I, mean, I mean, 15 minutes I can get there. Wish East Cobb had something like that. Um, East Cobb can't sustain restaurants, but... Uh, God bless Roswell. Yes, we go Roswell's great. We're same with Woodstock. Let, let, let me expand this net a little bit wider. Right. Now you can pick, you mentioned you travel a lot, and I know that you do. Now you can pick any city you can go to and any restaurant. So what, if you could get on a plane right now, snap your fingers, where are you going? Okay, so I'm a steak lover. Love a good steak. Medium rare, gotta be. Yeah. <laughs> can't can't yeah, be no over art, medium no rare. Gotta be medium rare. So I would say my favorite meal that I have had internationally was at a hotel restaurant in the Arnal section of Costa Rica. It was the Tabacón Resort and they brought me a steak on a hot lava rock. It was grass-fed. I don't know what it is about the beef in Costa Rica, but it was the best steak I've ever had. Damn. Okay, you win. You win. I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of follow-up I'd have to that. Uh, it was awesome. I, I love a good steakhouse. I love a good steak. Um, you know, I remember... Uh, Jason Gans, who I mentioned earlier, he lived in New York for like 10 years after college. So we'd go there once or twice a year. Guys would go and hang out. And there's nothing better than like a group of a group of people sitting in a steakhouse. You know, you got your big table, uh, do the family style steak where they, you know, yep. butterfly it all up for you. I mean, there's just nothing better. I will say that if I'm going to pick my favorite restaurant, um, I can make a steak at home. It's not going to be as good as there, but at least it's a steak. Right. Um, so if I were to, if I were to answer my own question, I would probably, I'd probably go with something that I can't make at home. Okay. Um, there's a sushi place. I've been to it in San Diego. Uh, Nobu. You've been to Nobu before? I've been to Nobu in Vegas. So they've got one in Vegas. They've got, they've got, they've got several. Uh, I was blown away by Nobu in San Diego. Very so I think that if, if, I were to, if I were to answer my own question, that's what I'd go with. And I would even back up and I'd say if I, if I could pick a day, I would do like Braves versus Padres at Petco Park in San Diego uh, at like a four o'clock game mm-hmm. and then roll Dinner into Nobu. Nobu. I'm going to give you a helpful hint then because I'm not a super huge sushi fan because I'm not a huge fish person. I'll eat it. has to be a certain way. Oku, West Midtown, very close to Cooks and Soldiers on the way. Amazing sushi. Okay, write it down, write it down. Now, I've seen you, uh, you and Carson went to Fenway Park. Yes, so we try to do some sports trips. We're doing another one in, we try to do them over Labor Day. We're going to do a Mets game. So New York. This so year. okay. So have y'all been to several stadiums then? We've done Wrigley. We've done obviously Brave Stadium. So we've done cool. Fenway. We'll do the Mets. So so cool. Rig- Wrigleyville. Uh, it really feels amazing. And going to games at Wrigley. It's super fun. Well, it's funny because while I am a Braves fan, I'm a bigger Cubs fan because my fiance and my son are huge Cubs fans. Didn't know that. Yes, huge so, Cubs fans. So Carson's a Cubs guy. He is a Cubs. Who's his guy. favorite player? I would say Rizzo. Rizzo. Well, no, Rizzo's not on the guess. Cubs anymore. I know. Well, he was. He's a, yeah, he, he's, so Carson does this thing when he bats. He does the rib, Rizzo booty shake. Deal. I can see that from yeah. the, from the lefty. He does it. Um, that that's cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean San Francisco. I want to go to see Oracle. You should probably go out there now. If you go to um, if you go to New York. Just remember that the Met Stadium is kind of not near things. I know. So my family um, lives on Long Island. I always pass it when we're going from the airport to yeah, them. Yeah. So we'll probably stay in Long Island. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been to the Yankees Stadium. I've not been to the Mets one. Um, 
But yeah, we love to travel. We love to do sports stuff. It's a great, you know, it's great to have that in common with your son as keep, a mom. Keep doing that. I mean, those are memories that, uh, that he's going to have forever. You're going to have forever. So I love it. Absolutely. Um, well, look, we just we just blew through an hour. It just happens happens so fast. Uh, what do we miss? Like, tell about anything else about your practice, anything else about kind of what you're doing now. I mean, I want people to know, you know, where to find you if they've got any sort of workers' compensation issue. Or- Absolutely. So, yes, I mean, loved having this hour with you, Josh. It was, I really appreciate the invitation. Like I said, we handle any kind of work injury. Uh, you know, I can link the website to your Facebook page when you post about this. But, yeah, you know, any any kind of work accident, we're happy to help, you know, any kind of case, we're happy to talk to whomever, whether it's a case we take or a case we don't take. Love to give folks good direction. I like it. I like it. Well, I appreciate you having, appreciate you coming today. I know that you're protective of your time as you discuss and you need to be. So thank you for sharing this hour, hour and a half with me and happy this, to. this nice bottle of Pinot that there's still some in it. So we, we got, we got some work to do, before, <laughs> you know, before, before the day is over. But, um, you know, we've got your Instagram handle now to follow your, your foodie stuff. We're going to follow Carson when he's you know doing great in, in baseball and everything. So uh, all good stuff ahead. Absolutely. And I appreciate you coming here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Josh. you all for listening. And uh, until next time, as always, keep chopping. 